my kids anyway, they're like, oh, it's a new kid. They're not thinking about religion. They're not thinking about geopolitical issues. They're like, oh, he can kick a soccer ball really well. Or, oh, you know, let's go throw football. As we've explored this season, the world can be a scary place for kids and for adults. But we're not without hope because we believe that getting people together can help us heal. That intentional time with people who are different than ourselves fosters empathy, pushes us through fear, and brings us to a better understanding of ourselves and others. We start today's episode with Syra Siddiqui. Syra is a mom of three, a wife, a former teacher turned doctoral student, studying social justice education. She is an unschooler and an avid traveler. Syra is also a child of immigrants, a Muslim American, a social activist, and a passionate writer. So I think I'm ready on my end. My phone is on Do Not Disturb. Do you know if there's a Do Not Disturb feature on the computer? Syra is an observer. She watches the world, and she shares her findings on her growing blog and Instagram platform. My name is Syra Siddiqui. I am the writer slash blogger at Confessions of a Muslim Mom. But I'm also a, a digital instructor, a digital teacher. Um, I'm a, a parent educator. And I believe strongly in teaching our children to be critically thinking, to be emotionally healthy, and to be anti-bias, to be actively anti-bias. I am a huge advocate. I talk a lot about shifting power paradigms and releasing control to children and giving them that ability to have autonomy over their own lives, whether it be at home or whether it be in an educational setting. This is crucial for us, raising this next generation. If we want them to be the ones to think critically, to make positive change in the world, they have to learn how to do that. In the past year, Syra and her husband, along with their three kids, temporarily moved from their home in Houston, Texas, to South America. From her home in Colombia, Syra talked with podcast producer Kayla Craig. Before we had children, my husband and I had lived briefly in Pakistan, which is actually one of our home countries. My father also hails from India. I mean, that experience for us was really profound in a lot of ways. I, I think living outside the United States in general is a really good experience um, in terms of just seeing things from a different perspective. We knew we kind of always wanted to do something like this with our kids. For years, Syra had encouraged her husband to put his name in the hat for work positions abroad. And then it happened. Colombia wasn't on their radar, but when the opportunity presented itself, they jumped at the chance to expand the worlds of their three kids. I have two that are 11, boy-girl twins, and then I have another one who followed after three years. So he's eight. It's important for us that they would have this opportunity, at least, for a little while. To Syra and her husband, raising children who own their identity as global citizens is important. Growing up as the children of immigrants, we had this perspective of being on the outside of the looking glass, you know, kind of looking in the conversation and the, the political banter that's been going on lately. This, this whole idea of go back to where you came from, this idea that who really can own this American identity? It didn't matter that I was born and raised in the United States. It didn't matter that, that this was the only culture that I had really known and this was my home. 
when you are the children of brown or black immigrants, to put it bluntly, when you are brown or black, period, you don't get that privilege of being fully American. You're always sort of on the outside looking in. Syra began to notice that her kids, for better of course, but sometimes worse, had a different perspective. I noticed my children looking at the world very differently. There was definitely a stronger sense of American entitlement. I always walked on eggshells with my American identity, never fully feeling like I could claim it. And they don't really have that perspective. They feel 100% American. And it was through that lens that I, A, I started to think differently about myself and my own sense of identity here. But B, I wanted to make sure that they still had this perspective of, I don't want to say the other, that they still had this global perspective. I worried that the trap of American isolationism would start to seep into my children. And so it was important for us as we raise them to just build their awareness of other parts of the world. Us simply living here has really created this four-dimensional space just south of the border. And I wanted that for my children. I wanted my children to see the world and think this world is full of people with dimension, people with thoughts and feelings. And there's so much similarity and commonality between us all. Do you have any stories of maybe a way that your family has gotten involved with your neighbors or with community? Uh, maybe something you attended or a way that you invited neighbors into your home? Really early on, a neighbor came by. He, he'd see my husband kind of roaming around a little bit and he found out where he lived. And that evening, the very first night that we settled into this house, he came by. We must have talked on our front porch. I mean, we had no furniture in the house. The house was completely empty. Uh, we had really had nothing there. Um, and this neighbor came by. We talked on the porch for about 30 minutes. He spoke English. And he said, I know what it's like to be in a place where you are new. And I wanted to make sure that you felt welcomed here. It was such a, such a beautiful, poignant moment on our very first night here. And that was just the beginning. A few months later, Syra's neighbor called, inviting them to a World Cup party. While their new friend and neighbor would be out of town, he wanted to make sure they had somewhere to go. He couldn't fathom his new friends being alone to watch the soccer games, so he called Syra and her family to extend an invitation to a fellow neighbor's party. And he said, I wanted to let you know that one of the neighbors is having a party, and he specifically told me, make sure that you tell them to come, because we want to welcome them into our house. And we had never met the family whose home it was before we went. We'd never met them before. And so we were watching the game. And every few minutes, I noticed they would come out and there would be a tray of food that they would pass around. And, you know, we're Muslim, so we're very cognizant of what kind of food is being served. Mm. Um, and we noticed that everything was chicken and beef. The gentleman who lives in the house, he said, I've never met a Muslim before. The only thing that I know about Muslims is that they don't eat pork and they don't drink alcohol. So he said, and you know, this is Colombia, this is Latin America. They, they know how to do, they know how to do barbecue. They know how to do meat to grill, mm. uh, but they really know how to do pork. And he said, we, we made sure that everything that we made, including the chorizo that they, I think they made by hand, was all stuff that we could consume. I was so touched by that. I was so overwhelmed by that. These are the kinds of experiences that we keep having 
hear over and over and over again this sort of very gracious meeting of two different cultures and two different ways of life, but having it blend together very seamlessly and very beautifully. On hindsight, I almost feel as though the opportunity came up for us to leave our home, to leave the States at a very pivotal time in our nation's history, but also in our own personal development. And I, I feel like being here has really cemented this hope in my heart of what plurality can look like, what living amongst difference can look like and, and should look like. We'll be right back. Greetings from the West Coast. It's Propaganda here. I am a hip-hop and spoken word artist, and I am the official artist in residence at Preemptive Love this year. Wanted to tell y'all about something I really love over here at the Preemptive Love shop, and it's the refugee-made section, specifically the soaps. I just love the idea that this is a direct service. A lot of times things seem so hard to like actually make a a difference in. Here's a phenomenal way to do it. You just buy something from a refugee. Here in LA, homeboy industries, you could do your Googles. But Father Greg Boyle said, nothing stops a bullet like a job. Let that sizzle in your spirit. I just think it's a brilliant way to like directly and effectively really affect change in areas that you might be passionate about. So the refugee made section, go check out the soap. That's my favorite. So it's preemptivelove.shop. You could put promo code prop in there and get 20% off. Poke around, it's such dope stuff in there. And again, preemptivelove.shop, promo code prop, get 20% off whatever your purchase is. And I'm telling you, get the soap. It's amazing. Peace. Kayla asked Syra how her upbringing as a daughter of immigrants has shaped not only how she views their world, but also how she parents her children. To reflect on that question, she had to go back to her own childhood. Ooh, that's a good question. (laughs) (laughs) That's a very deep question for me because I grew up as the children of brown immigrants in a very small, predominantly white, homogenous town in Ohio. I was the only brown person in my grade level. So amongst hundreds of kids, I was the only non-white individual. And on picture day, you know, where everybody gets their picture taken, the lighting was always set for the white complexion. So every yearbook picture, it's like this huge shadow just across my face and across the photo. That's how white it was. Cyrus spent her adolescence under piles of books. She was an avid reader. Getting lost in a good story is a childhood experience many of us have fond memories of. But even in those worlds of imagination and wonder, she never saw herself reflected in the pages. I don't think I ever once in all of my younger years picked up a book that was from the viewpoint of somebody who was not white. Not once. And that really shaped my sense of self and it shaped my view of the world. I had a lot of self-hate. And I grew up with a lot of personal shame about myself and about my family, my own home culture. There was a sense of white Western superiority. And I was very ashamed of all things not white and not Western. It took me many, many years to unpack all of that. When her family moved to Houston, Texas, she experienced a much more diverse world. Suddenly, she saw other people who looked like her, who talked like her. 
one of the things that really helped me tremendously, um, really shift the way that I think was when my family moved to Houston, Texas. I was just on the cusp of eighth grade. I was just becoming a teenager. And I remember the first time I, I walked into a grocery store in Texas and I saw an Indian woman wearing a sari and I was mortified. I was, I was mortified for her. I was embarrassed mm. for her. That's how much this self-hate had sort of trickled into my heart unknowingly. But Houston is an incredibly diverse place to live. You will find every race, every religion, every kind of person in one big metropolis. That was an incredibly profound experience for me growing up in shaping who I was or who I would be in my adult years. A former teacher, Cyrus says one thing she has learned, every child needs windows and mirrors in their life. Children need to have windows and they need to have mirrors. Windows meaning they need to have representation of different so that they can look into the lives of other people. That sort of speaks to what we're doing in Colombia and what we're trying to do in raising global citizens. But it's equally important, and, and I would argue, you know, perhaps because of my lack of it, children need to have mirrors. They need to have representations of themselves that they can see, that they can touch. Because when you see yourself, it helps you figure out who you are, right? It helps you understand your own identity. And here I was, I was in a glass house that was full of windows and I was seeing everybody else, but I was not seeing myself. And Houston to me was like a huge mirror. I know the pain of coming from a place where you don't see yourself fitting, where you're not comfortable with yourself. And that completely informs my perspective on everything, but particularly how I'm raising my children. I'm very conscious of the fact that my children need to be around same and different, but they both equally play an important role in their life. That's so good. Do you have a story or a memory of when that rose to the surface as you were having a conversation with one of your kids or watching them interact with someone where these kind of experiences came to a head? I remember when my twins, when the eldest were about five years old, I would say, and we went to a park in Houston and we were just kind of hanging out. And I was, I was sitting on the side with a friend of mine. The children were kind of playing and we were kind of keeping an eye from afar. A gentleman came up to me and he said, excuse me, is this, is that your daughter over there on the hill? And so I looked to where he was pointing and I saw it was my daughter. And then I started, my heart started racing and I thought, oh my God, what happened? <laughs> what did she do? You know, you start to get nervous when people point out your children. And I said, yes, that's my daughter. And I remember he turned to me and he looked at me and he just said, sorry, I'm getting choked up. <laughs> he said, I've never heard a young child speak about themselves and about their faith with such confidence and such clarity. And it was, it was like, there was, it was just this moment where I realized that their upbringing was so different than my own. And I, I realized the importance of raising them a certain way and that all of it is, matters and it's making a difference. It made me so happy to know that she's growing up in a world where she's very self-aware of who she is and she's given the space and the freedom 
to really come into her own and be comfortable with who she is. There's nothing else I give my children. I, I hope it's that. Gosh, well, now I'm tearing up a lot right along with you. So. I think that's a universal hope for all mothers. I have four kids. Two of them came to my family through adoption and they have brown skin. And I'm hearing what you're saying and I'm hoping that I have these mirrors in their lives and that they can have an experience like that where somebody says, wow, look at that confidence. Look at them living in who they are. So it's really beautiful. You should definitely keep that memory close to your heart, I think. It's really powerful. That's the thing about what we do. We listen first, but we also bring our own hearts and our own memories and perspectives to every conversation we record. Kayla asked Syra one last question. What does love anyway mean to her? I feel like we're edging closer and closer to this world where this belief that in order to love one another, in order to have respect and kindness and to really even be able to have a conversation with somebody. We need to be the same. And I find it on both sides of the spectrum. There is so much benefit that comes from being around difference. At the end of the day, we are all people of value, people of values, people of certain beliefs. This is a huge world. And there are going to be a lot of difference in the things that we believe and the ideas that we subscribe to. That's kind of where we're moving in this social media age, this tendency to judge more. You must have an opinion about something, you know, something to write and tweet and post. Unfortunately, that leads us to being more divisive. So for me, love anyways really is about us appreciating the fact that we can benefit from one another as human beings and we can live beautifully and seamlessly together despite the fact that we are different. So as I got to know Muhammad and I realized he was looking for a friend, I thought maybe I would help him get furniture or give him rides to work. But as soon as I connected with him, I realized that Church World Service was doing that for him. Like he had people in his life who could make sure he had food, make sure his kids were getting to school, make sure he found a job. He was really looking for a friend. He was really looking for someone to spend time with, someone who was willing to come to his house and sit with him, someone who was willing to eat with him and his family, to laugh, to tell jokes to show pictures, you know, here's pictures from home, those sorts of things. That's Sean Smucker. Sean lives in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, where his family roots in the United States go back 13 generations. Yes, 13. I grew up feeling so much a part of this community. I felt so at home here. I, I would go places and meet cousins I didn't know I had. Even if I show up somewhere where I'm not related to someone, I know who they are or I know who their parents are or, you know, their parents are friends, old friends of my parents. So it's one of those areas that, it, you know, you can feel very connected if you've grown up here. But if you're not from here, it can be very difficult. Syra's life experience has convinced her that, in her words, we can live beautifully and seamlessly together despite the fact that we are different. Sean has the same conviction. But through the friendship he forged with Mohammed, a refugee to the United States from Syria, 
He also learned that what it takes is real intentionality and sometimes a shift in how we view family. We have such a high view of family. It's not that it's a bad thing, but it's become so important that so many of us don't even look outside of it anymore. It can become all-consuming. You know, if you go to church with your family, okay, well, Sunday afternoons, you're at your family's house. Holidays, you're with your family. I think that we have to be willing to look outside of our circles, outside of our predetermined family and friend circles, and be aware of people who need relationship. And that can be refugees, that can be immigrants, that can be single people who who don't have family. There's so many individuals in our lives who need someone to reach out to them. But the thing is, it's not just a one-way thing. Like me reaching out, quote unquote, reaching out to Muhammad ended up being one of the biggest blessings I've ever had in my life. But it wasn't just about me, oh, I'm going to go help Muhammad. That is not what it's about. It is about enriching your life. That happens when you make space for people, when you invite other people into your home, when you're willing to go to other people's homes. That's when true community starts, when true friendship is able to form. And that's what we need right now. I mean, look at the news, you know, oh my gosh, look around us. Like we have got to start connecting with other people, or we're just going to destroy ourselves. Connection takes time, though. I asked Sean, on a super practical level, how he and Muhammad made time for friendship. In the early days, they barely spoke each other's languages. Sean was a busy writer with another job on the side. Muhammad and his wife, as is often the case for refugees and new immigrants, worked multiple jobs six days a week to make ends meet. I can't speak for everybody. For me, it was a willingness to be interrupted. It was slow down. My life is just a constant go, go, go. When Muhammad lived here in the city, I had to slow down, or I never would have seen him. I had to say, okay, this afternoon, I'm just going to push everything off, and Muhammad's going to come over, and we're going to sit on the front porch for an hour, or... I'm going to go grab a coffee with him tonight at 10 p.m. after the kids are in bed and my wife's asleep and things have quieted down. So I think we've developed these mindsets towards interruptions, towards a pace of life. We have to be willing to back away from those and make space. Practically speaking, it meant so much to him when I would just stop by. How often do we do that anymore? He loved it. If I was out driving for Uber or If I happened to be in that part of the city, I would just swing by. Oh my goodness, he loved it. Sean first met Muhammad when he was researching a book, which eventually became published under the title Once We Were Strangers. Their meeting happened in the offices of an agency that was helping Muhammad and his family get settled in the U.S. But that's not where their relationship stayed. The children had a much easier time of it. They're just so much less concerned about everything. (laughs) You know, I think as adults, we bring so much baggage into meetings like this. When you meet someone new and you think, oh, they're from the Middle East, they're from Syria, like there's just so many things swirling in your mind. Whereas with kids, my kids anyway, they're like, oh, it's a new kid. They have no concept of, especially like the eight and nine-year-olds, 
they're not thinking about religion. They're not thinking about geopolitical issues. They're like, oh, he can kick a soccer ball really well. Or, oh, you know, let's go throw football. Or they hit it off immediately. We would meet at different parks in the city. And the kids, they never wanted to leave. You know, they wanted to keep playing and, and they had a blast. Widening their friendship to include their families was a practical function of living busy lives. But it had a much wider implication for Sean's children. The family side of things was actually one of the most rewarding because it opened up a lot of opportunities for us to talk about some stuff with our kids that might have felt forced or out of place otherwise. For us to be able to say, hey, you know, these refugee issues that you're hearing about or these kids who are coming to school who are new, those are just like Muhammad's kids. The people who are trying to travel here, trying to start a new life, they're just like Muhammad and Maradi. And it was such a perfect touch point for our kids at what proves to be, I think, a really important age, you know, as they develop ideas about the world and things like that. Having a relationship with Muhammad and his family opened up the world to Sean's children. And for Sean, it opened up his own ideas about patterns he's lived his whole life. I realized pretty early on that that was going to be a big commitment. It was going to be a commitment to something that I committed to very few people in my life in that way. Yeah, friendship, wow. I don't know that those of us in the West, especially in my generation, Gen X and younger, we're just so busy. Those of us who have families are so committed to our families and the activities that go with that. I think we've strayed from that day-to-day community friendship. But as Sean said earlier, building relationships that cross cultures and language is a two-way street. In their first meeting, Muhammad was excited at the idea that his story of fleeing Syria and making a new home in the U.S. might be published in a book. But Sean outlined the difficulties of a project like this and told Muhammad that there were no guarantees. He was very excited about it. And the next thing I said was, well, you know, I don't, I don't want you to get too excited about the book because when it comes to publishing, you just never know. It may be that nothing comes of this. And he got a big smile on his face. And through the translator, he said, oh, that's impossible. It's impossible for nothing to come of this. We're friends now. And I was, I was actually kind of stunned by that. Like, I, I had gone into the meeting thinking, here's a Syrian Muslim, someone who has probably heard as many bad things about the United States as I've heard about Muslims in the Middle East. To have him be completely open, completely willing to be my friend, it was kind of disarming. And I remember just sitting there in the silence for a minute and thinking, wow, where is this grace coming from? As Cyrus said, despite our differences, our love and hope for our children and creating a different way to live in community is a thread that can unite us. Thanks for listening to our final episode of season two. Of course, you can binge on all of our past episodes and read transcripts and show notes at preemptivelove.org slash podcast. The show notes for this episode includes a few of my favorite quotes from Sean Smucker's book, Once We Were Strangers, and links to Sarah Siddiqui's digital homes. We'll be back soon for season three of Love Anyway. If you want to hear more stories of challenge and hope in podcast form, let us know. 
Connect with us and learn more about what we do via preemptive love on Instagram and Twitter. Use the hashtag love anyway to give feedback, start a conversation and share with others. And make sure you're subscribed on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. We have some exciting stories coming your way. I'm Erin Wilson, and this is Love Anyway. Thanks for listening. Hey, everyone. Before we go, we've gotten a lot of great listener feedback. Thank you so much for listening. We love what you're thinking and how you're processing these episodes. And a lot of you want to know how you can get involved. So I just want to share, here's how. When you give monthly, you allow us to say yes right away when a crisis hits. And you allow us to give help that lasts, staying for as long as it takes. Your monthly gift supports all of the work providing relief, creating jobs, and building community. So visit preemptivelove.org slash donate because when you give each month, you help mend the wounds of war. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you for season three. The Love Anyway podcast is written and produced by me, Kayla Craig, along with Ben Irwin and Aaron Wilson. Skip Matheny is our digital production director. Johnny Craig is our audio editor. Our audio is mixed and mastered by Dylan Seals. Jeremy Courtney, Jessica Courtney, and J.R. Purcell are executive producers. Special thanks to Cyrus Siddiqui and Sean Smucker. Our theme music is by Roman Campbell.